Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. It was a very serious outbreak. People died. It was in, I believe, 26 states in the end. The Center for Disease Control estimates that every year, one in six Americans suffer foodborne illness. Things like E. coli 157H7 is the leading, the secondary sequelae of, of um, hemolytic uremic syndrome is the leading cause of kidney failure in children under the age of five. In this episode, we're going to delve into the issue of food safety and look at the constant battle to provide fresh foods that are so necessary for a healthy diet, but can carry microbial hitchhikers that can do some pretty awful things. Continual watery diarrhea for long periods of time. Symptoms like diarrhea, uh, fever, or vomiting. Who wants explosive diarrhea? These are symptoms you don't want to experience long term. Yes, I did warn you. Today we're talking about food safety and what you can do to make sure that the choices you make in choosing a healthy diet actually keep you healthy. Hi, my name is Betsy Bin. I'm a Senior Extension Associate with Cornell University and Director of the Produce Safety Alliance, the National Good Agricultural Practices Program, and the Institute for Food Safety at Cornell University. My name is JP Dondor-Ares, and I'm an Assistant Professor at California State University, Monterey Bay. We tend to think of ourselves as, uh, as we're, we're healthy uh, and we're eating a healthy diet. And yet there is uh, a fairly common occurrence called the stomach bug. And I think we've all experienced <laughs> this and uh, it has some rather gross symptoms. We attribute this to some kind of uh, pathogen that we've acquired, but we don't necessarily trace it back to our food. Uh, how often is a stomach bug uh, really a symptom of something that we've done improperly, either in sourcing the food, preparing the food, or we've contaminated the food somehow in our handling of it? That's really tough to tell you how often. If you look at statistics, they say roughly one out of six people will have a foodborne illness every year. Um, and the question becomes, when you get the stomach bug or, or when you have this, where did it come from? I think a couple of things are, are relevant here. In the broader scheme of foodborne illnesses, there's essentially three types. There's um, intoxication, which is where you eat um, a food that has a toxin in it. And, and usually that type of foodborne illness, people are sick pretty short term, right? They're, um, they're experiencing those symptoms right away, depending on what the toxin is. Um, then there's an infection where you eat 
um, the organism and it and it sets up a home in your intestine and leads to an infection essentially um, and that takes a little bit longer and then there's um, a toxin mediated infection where you eat the organism it sets up in your uh, digestive tract and makes a toxin while it's in there so it's a, a toxico infection or a toxin mediated infection and and all of these things take different amounts of time to show up and the different organisms take different amounts of time to show up. So um, something like listeria can take up to 30 days to actually result in an illness where um, Clostridium perfringens can show up more quickly. Uh, so it's it's tough to tell. And, and people also, when they get sick, they always think it's the last thing they ate. Right? Like, oh, I'm sick. It's what I had last night for dinner. That's not always the case. The Center for Disease Control estimates that every year, one in six Americans suffer foodborne illness. Um, however, these are just estimated cases, and they are not actual cases because um, most of the time when we have foodborne, foodborne um, food poisoning or, or a stomach bug, we end up not going to the doctor. We just wait until um, uh, it gets better by itself. Uh, however, the cases that the CDC tracks are based on um, cases reported by doctors and health centers. Um, so they estimate that those numbers are way higher than the actual numbers that they see every year, which in some which ranges um, in the numbers of about 50 million people getting sick every year with um, around 5,000 people dying every year of foodborne illness. Uh, I've, I've been in your classes before where the opening line is, how many of you in the audience have spent uh, uh, spent the better part of a day sitting on the toilet with your head in a trash can. Uh, now that instantly gets their attention. In any room of people, you are going to have a lot of hands go up. You're going to have in a group of 20 or 30 people, you're going to have 10 or 15 hands go up. The important point is the next question. How many of you took a sample of that to the doctor to find out what was actually wrong with you? And that's when all the hands go down. And so when we talk about foodborne illness and all the data says estimate, the reason it's an estimate is because a lot of foodborne illnesses people recover from. They don't know what they had. They don't know if they, um, you know, had norovirus. They don't know because they recover from it. If you're healthy enough, you recover from it and you don't think anything else of it. But for some people, they don't recover. Um, you know, things like E. coli 157H7 is the leading, the secondary sequelae of, of um, hemolytic uremic syndrome is the leading cause of kidney failure in children under the age of five. Um, and so it is important. I, I love that question because what it demonstrates is, oh, I may have had a foodborne illness, but I recovered and I went on with my life. So you didn't show up in that statistic, right? You, <laughs> we don't know what you had. Um, and where, where David and I work, we had, a, we had a foodborne outbreak at the station. A bunch of us got norovirus from a food handler. And 
we ended up reporting it to the health department. Why? Because we're scientists. Um, funny story, the health department lady told me she'd never been involved in a foodborne illness outbreak where more people had offered stool samples. I'm really concerned about eating a healthy diet, so I'm going to go to my local uh, boutique market and get one of those little shopping carts, and I'm going to head for the produce section. Now I've folded out this special little seat that they've got in there for the celery, and I'm going to grab my uh, water-spritzed celery bunch and plop it right in that convenient celery holder. What have I just done? Well, yeah, and today people are really trying to move away from plastic bags and stuff to protect the produce. But uh, when you grocery shop, there's usually something else that goes in the top of that cart, and that's a baby or an infant. Um, and so it is It is funny that people put the produce in the same place where babies' backsides tend to sit in a grocery store. That That is an interesting thing that happens. How does one address this uh, this conundrum? Uh, there is a a movement away from overuse of plastics, and yet partitioning the foods that we buy at the retail level is a really important step in preventing cross contamination. So, what's a shopper to do? When you shop, it is very important to think about where you're putting things in your grocery cart. Um, and keeping things from getting cross-contaminated, both while you're shopping, as well as in the bags between uh, the grocery store and home, and then what you do at home. So the most likely result of cross-contamination is usually from raw meats to fresh produce, because fresh produce, if you eat it raw, doesn't receive a cooking step to kill what's on there. So when you're shopping, it's important to keep your raw meats away from your fresh produce so that you don't have that cross-contamination happen. So that's important both in the shopping cart, in the bags where the food is packed, and then of course, when you get it home. Um, Also comes into place while you're cooking to make sure, you know, cutting boards that you use for raw meat are also not used for um, cutting up fresh produce. A a big one we see with summer coming up is um, when people take stuff out to the grill, making sure that that plate that you take that has the raw hamburgers on it, that that plate comes in and immediately goes in the sink to get washed or into the dishwasher and isn't used either to put the cooked meat back on or to put fresh produce out on the plate either. Do you have any practical advice for exactly how people should or should not wash uh, fruits and vegetables? The practical advice is rinse your fruits and vegetables prior to consumption under cool running water. Um, That is the recommended advice from USDA. That is the advice I recommend. Um, Some folks, a lot of folks will ask, um, you know, should I rinse my produce in diluted bleach solution? Should I add a little bit of soap? Um, The answer is no. Uh, People are way more likely to get sick or poisoned from the chemicals in the bleach or the chemicals in the soap. Um, and, and so those risks are higher. And, and on top of it, 
it's not really effective for washing the produce anyway. So on the studies they've done, it's uh, produce is, has a lot of nooks and crannies. And so it's not really reducing your risks related to consuming the produce. It's really just increasing your risks of getting a chemical um, poisoning and not actually improving the safety at all. There is a significant work that has been done by food scientists and in, in for many plant pathologists who have uh, worked on these systems for um, for a while and have been able to describe that these pathogens, even though again they are not plant pathogens, they have the the capacity to inhabit colonize and in many cases enter the plant tissues um, which even though they don't have the capacity to go directly through the plant epidermis because they don't have the um, mechanisms necessary to um, penetrate the, the plant epidermis or hijack the plant um, defense mechanisms they can actually uh, use wounds or cracks um, that the plant might have natural wounds or actually um, pathogen or insect um, wounds and enter the plant. And once they are inside of the plant, they can uh, obtain nutrients that are in the vascular system of the plant and, serve and establish there. There are studies that have shown that once the pathogen has, has established or colonized a plant uh, tissue, that they have the... The capacity, especially human bacterial pathogens like Salmonella and E. coli, they have the capacity to attach in an irreversible way, meaning that washing or even uh, disinfection with um, with bleach or any kind of, of um, product for for washing produce um, is is unable to um, reverse that attachment that the pathogen. Uh, has established with the plant surfaces. We're encouraged to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables uh, for a healthy diet. And yet, because these fresh fruits and vegetables are not cooked, they're more susceptible to transmitting a foodborne pathogen. So what's a vegetarian to do? Well, that's a, a great question. And as a matter of fact, when I did my PhD work with my former uh, major professor, Dr. Jerry Barak at the University of Wisconsin, that was the first thing that she told me uh, during my interview. She said, I don't want you to be afraid of working with foodborne pathogens or eating vegetables because I am a vegetarian and her whole career is based on studying salmonella and plant interactions. Um, I would say that there is definitely the risk of contamination um, or illness with consumption of fresh produce, just because despite the efforts of the industry um, of, of implementing pre-harvest and post-harvest interventions to mitigate or reduce the risk of contamination, there is not a killing step per se. We don't pasteurize or boil um, food that is supposed to be uh, ready to eat fresh produce. So the fact that, yes, we are now uh, eating more 
fruits and vegetables as a way to maintain a more healthy diet, which increases the risk of encountering these pathogens. The risk is very, very low. Um, if you think about the numbers of cases that happen every year, foodborne illness cases that happen every year are very small. Yet outbreaks, multi-state outbreaks happen, and they are just the result of a perfect storm. We there's is nothing different than what we know in plant pathology as the disease triangle. You need to have a host, a pathogen in the right environment. In the case of foodborne illness, you need to have that perfect storm, there's perfect conditions that lead to that um, contamination of the produce. And once that happens, it is almost impossible to get rid of this um, of that contamination. Because if you think about these foodborne pathogens are not plant pathogens, so there is no symptoms or uh, visual evidence of the contamination, which is makes it really hard for the growers and the, the consumers to identify potentially contaminated produce. Well, you don't have to only eat fresh vegetables, right? So cooking your vegetables in in some cases actually releases more nutrients than eating the vegetable raw. Um, so it is important for a healthy diet, diet that you eat a broad array of fruits and vegetables, but you don't have to feel limited to fresh fruits and vegetables. So I want to start there. Um, we love eating fresh fruits and vegetables. That is true. As a nation, we enjoy eating fresh salads and, um, you know, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries. Uh, we absolutely enjoy eating all these things fresh, and that's a very good thing. But I, I do want to start by saying, Eating fruits and vegetables doesn't always have to involve eating fresh produce. Um, and when you think about the safety of fresh produce, overall, it's very safe. We eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Do we have illnesses? Yes. We want to acknowledge that. But we don't want to lose sight of the long-term impacts of eating fruits and vegetables. Eating fruits and vegetables reduces your chances of certain cancers. It increases the likelihood of maintaining a proper body weight, which reduces risks associated with obesity. It reduces the likelihood of, of diabetes and other long-term chronic illnesses. So eating produce, fruits and vegetables in any state, fresh or cooked, um, is very important uh, because of those benefits to your health. The issue is, is that sometimes we do have foodborne illness outbreaks associated with fresh produce, and how do we reduce those risks? Um, when you think about it from a farm perspective, growers use what we call good agricultural practices, and they look at how they produce fruits and vegetables, including things like the water applied to the crop, how workers are trained. Um, to reduce risks during harvest, use of soil amendments, including manure. So ways to reduce risk during production is where the focus has been at the farm level. And that moves through the food system um, as it goes to retail um, and, and on to the consumer. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, 
stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. I don't think I'm going to get out of this dilemma by shopping at an upscale uh, store for organic produce, am I? No, as a matter of fact, um, organic agriculture, organic products, organically organically grown produce have as much of a risk as uh, conventionally grown produce. Um, there have been several studies showing that both organic fertilizers can be sources of um, produce contamination, but in other cases, also um, there have been studies that shown that. Um, pesticide applications um, or the application of uh, synthetic inputs can also contribute to the contamination of produce with this foreign-born pathogens. So either organic or conventional um, produce have equal risk of being contaminated. It has to do with the practices that are used on individual farms. And I have been on some small farms that do things that scare me. And I have been on large farms that do things that scare me. Um, and that I think when I say scare me, I, I mean, they're doing things that are increasing the microbial risk to their crops. And so um, it, there is no one size fits all or one size is better or conventional is better than organic. It really has to do with what are the practices they are using on the farm and how do those practices reduce the microbial risks that are out there? It goes from farm to fork. Every person in the supply system, farmers, um, farm workers, packers, retailers, distribution networks, consumers, we all have a part to play in protecting the food system and ensuring that what we eat is safe. We all have a piece to play in that. Now, at the producer level, um, there have been several regulatory changes in the past few years involved in the way crops are harvested, uh, the way they're handled, uh, and the traceability of crops. And in fact, that in itself is a remarkable technological achievement that allows us now to pick up a packaged uh, item in a market and it can be traced back to very precise coordinates and times uh, at various parts of the country. Uh, how did that come about? Well, first of all, that's not universal. So it, it, you can do that with some products, but you can't do that with all products. So, um, and how it came about where it seems to be most likely to happen are in commodities that have had trouble in the past. Um, the, after the 2006 spinach outbreak, the leafy greens industry um, engaged with the United States Department of Agriculture to establish the leafy greens marketing agreement. And that set a number of standards for the production of leafy greens, predominantly in California and Arizona, but other suppliers of leafy greens engaged with the LGMA as well. Um, and then, of course, in 2011, with the passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act, we saw the first ever regulation that governs fresh produce come into being. And um, 
we refer to that as the produce safety rule. It's it's not the only thing that the Food Safety Modernization Act does, but it is the first ever regulation of fresh produce and the standards for producing, growing, harvesting um, fresh produce. So the the incident with um, with spinach uh, mm-hmm. in the in the earlier part of the two thousands um, caused a plummeting of spinach sales. Uh, nationwide uh, that lasted far beyond the threat posed by the contaminated produce. Uh, And interestingly, uh, a remark by Willie Nelson played into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. So the same week that um, the spinach outbreak became known and hit the media, uh, Willie Nelson happened to be arrested with his bandmates for the possession of marijuana. And there is a quote uh, that's out there from Willie Nelson that says, "Um, it's a good thing I had a bag of marijuana, not a bag of spinach. I'd be dead by now. And I think it's, I use that quote quite a bit when I talk to growers because we don't ever want to be in a position where fresh produce is is less, less safe than a bag of marijuana. Um, and I think we can all, all agree with that. Uh, this is well before the um, hemp movement and uh, well before legalization movements were out there. But it's very important for all growers who produce uh, fruits and vegetables to understand the importance of food safety practices. goes to show you how one quip by, uh, by a person with a microphone in front of them at, at the right moment can just go viral and have a global impact. Well, I I certainly do not blame Willie Nelson for the decrease in leafy green sales. That's for sure. I don't want to say that at all. Um, I think the reduction, you're completely correct. The lag in sales of leafy greens was sustained for many, many years after that outbreak. Um, it was a very serious outbreak people died. It was in, I believe, 26 states in the end um, and had a very significant impact to the leafy greens industry as a whole. Um, Very, very impactful. And certainly the outbreaks that have continued in Romaine um, have definitely had a very negative impact on sales and on people's confidence in leafy greens. And that is that is something we absolutely have to address because it as we as we know consuming fruits and vegetables is very good for you so we want to give people access to fruits and vegetables to maintain good health that's critical so what are the big threats to the safety of the food supply presently Well, the thing we see with outbreaks related to fresh produce is that there's a lot of different organisms that have been linked to outbreaks. So you're not talking about just one organism. You're not talking about just one commodity. It's not just one region of the country that we're worried about. Um, And so when you think about how to deal with it, you have to think broadly about risks that happen on every farm. What's the water you're using when you grow produce? 
Is that water from a municipal source, a well, a protected well, an open well, or a surface water source? Um, what are you using um, to fertilize and to grow the crop? You're a plant pathologist. All of these things that are necessary for keeping a plant happy are important because we have to get the plant to the point where it can create a fruit or a vegetable that can then be harvested. So are you using soil amendments that have any risks? Are you using raw manures? Are you using um, other soil amendments that carry microbial risks? Then when we talk about fresh produce, it's harvested by hand. Um, humans are most likely to spread human pathogens. So giving um, workers access to hand washing, um, teaching people what it is to properly wash your hands. How do I properly wash my hands? When is it critical that I properly wash my hands? How do I as a person spread pathogens? And when I'm working, how do I prevent that from happening. Um, those are just a few of the areas that we talk about and that are addressed in good agricultural practices. I might be a, a bit outside the curve on this because I don't know if I've ever ingested anything that's made me sick. I, I eat very much like a dog. If I feel bad, I just go outside and eat some grass and lie down and I'm fine. Uh, but do people differ in their sensitivity to these pathogens? Yes, as as a matter of fact, again, um, most of the people um, tend to just overlook the um, the occurrence of these foodborne illnesses, and they just wait out until the issue um, kind of like solves by itself. The body, uh, the the reason why we we start vomiting and having diarrhea is because the body is trying to shed out that um, pathogen that is not. Um, recognized as part of the the natural uh, human microbiome, and then the path the the gut microbiome and the path the body is trying to just get rid of it. Um, however, not all of us have the capacity to just wait until we get better, and the situation gets more complicated for um, people in risk populations, especially the elderly, um, young kids, and immunocompromised people that uh, often cannot afford or don't have the, um, the baseline health uh, condition that allows them to just fight the pathogen um, naturally. Um, at the same time, it also can get, um, it gets more complicated depending on the um, strain or the variation of the pathogen, the pathogen that is ingested. Um, in the case of Salmonella, for example, um, you can pretty much um, just wait and as, uh, as as long as as you stay hydrated um, and you don't suffer any um, major uh, uh, issue, um, you can just wait until your body. Um, gets rid of it. But in the case of E. coli, for example, um, especially the shiga toxin producing strains of E. coli, um, these are very toxic um, pathogens that produce uh, this shiga toxin um, compound that actually can lead it to uh, kidney failure within a um, number of hours. I'm really glad you brought up the issue of, of immunocompromised people. And I think this is one of the things that consumers maybe don't 
pay as much attention to that they should pay attention to is that people in our population are immunocompromised. Depending on the the data you look at, there was this uh, older publication where they looked at the population as a whole and they said roughly one out of four people are immunocompromised in some way. What does this mean? Uh, Pregnant women, people under the age of five, people over the age of 60, you know, they broke it out into these categories. And they said, if you add up all of these people, roughly one out of four people are immunocompromised in some way. And um, if you know you have somebody who is immunocompromised, if you know you have somebody who just came out of chemotherapy or just came out of a treatment where you know they are severely immunocompromised. You shouldn't be feeding them a lot of raw produce or raw food anyway, because they're really susceptible um, to getting sick. And and it's important to understand that, again, eating fruits and vegetables, it doesn't have to be raw fruits and vegetables. You know, I love sautéed spinach. And other stuff like that that's very good for you. Um, and then you have that cooking step to reduce the risks. So that's that's the important thing is that if you know you have somebody who's immunocompromised, you really should be paying attention to what they eat and not, not feeding them things that put them at risk. If someone does suspect that they've been a victim of a foodborne illness, how do they go about reporting it and to whom? Call the health department. Um, if you if you think it's a, in my case, when I realized a bunch of us were sick, the first thing I did was call the health department. Um, if you if you are sick, and and I don't know, I, I guess I don't know if I'd use the word victim, right? Because some of this happens. It's not um, a lot of people make them sick in their own households. I guess you could be a victim of bad sanitation in your kitchen. Um, but, but if you're sick, you would go to the doctor um, and, and hopefully the medical community, if, um, if they saw a bunch of people come in, would then, of course, report it. There are surveillance systems in the U.S. that gather um, that kind of information uh, to make sure if there is an outbreak that those illnesses are linked together and that they can be identified together so that they know if there's an outbreak, they can start to figure out where that contamination is coming from and stop that contamination getting into the population. So we do have a a very good surveillance system that, that does that. I know you're not a medical doctor, but are there uh, foods that would be beneficial to eat after an episode like this? Oh, yeah, I'm not a medical doctor. I Wait, know do you, that. Do you, you mean know... this episode of this podcast, or do you mean an episode? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, no, I mean, maybe, I think this might be a great weight loss program. Uh, this would just kill your appetite probably for the rest of the day. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.